I love these spaces because we can really talk about connectivities, differences, but interactions that intersect and um, interweave. And this is how I met um, Anthony Williams here with me, uh, because through my film, uh, Blurring the Color Line, uh, when I went to film in Dolphin, Mississippi, where I didn't know I had relatives, um, we managed to stumble on this brilliant um, filmmaker anthony anthony part of the aj williams media production so thank you so much for joining us today anthony and um being a part of my project really oh yeah it was fun um i love connecting with other people especially from you know all across the country all across the world and other creatives i i just love being in the same space with you know like-minded individuals yeah, and I, I do believe in serendipity and how forces bring people together uh, for whatever reason it is. So here we are. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So I, you know, I brought you here because there are several things. First of all, you know, obviously the connection to my film. And I always wanted to ask you about your views um, on my examination of race relations between the um, Asian and African-American uh, community. But at the same time, you know, through working with you, um, helping us film in Mississippi is that you enlightened me on this dark history, another yet another untold history, I guess, from my perspective, um, is the, the, the segregation issues in Mississippi, specifically Biloxi, which you are, you know, you've been working on as, as a big project. So maybe you want to start by, why don't we start by talking about you first? Like, give us, tell us what we, you want us to know about you first. Well, I'm a filmmaker here in uh, Gulfport, Mississippi, which is right outside of Biloxi. Biloxi is more popular, but Gulfport's actually a larger city. Um, but I live in Gulfport. That's where my office is set up. Um, I do a lot of commercial filmmake filmmaking, uh, so I'll you know make commercials for uh, local businesses and national organizations as well. That's the where the majority of my work comes from. But I also do um, documentary films, um, and I, I was just working on a, a production with ITV in Jackson, Mississippi, about the prison system. Um, but one of the projects that I just finished was a product pro, production about the Biloxi wait-ins. Um, and if you can imagine a sit-in, a wait-in is kind of similar, but they were in the water. So um, that's that's kind of what that was all about. So I've never heard of this term before, weighed in. So um, for people who've not, and you said it, you know, uh, to kind of compare it to sit-ins, um, give us a little historical, like one-on-one context to how this started and how it's relevant to specifically to Biloxi that you're working on. So here in Biloxi, there was a guy by the name of Dr. Gilbert Mason, who was uh, a doctor here in Biloxi and he was in college on the swim team. So when he came to Biloxi, he loved to swim. So he went to the beach um, to get in the water with his family. Well, upon going to the beach, this uh, officer uh, of the law came and told him that he couldn't be there because I guess the people across the street um, thought that it was their property. Um, obviously, um, the law in America says that the beach is not is public property. You can't own the beach in in America anyway. And so they took it to the the mayor of the of Biloxi and um, 
nobody could give them a straight answer. So they took it all the way from that officer trying to get answers and all the way up the ladder and nobody could give them a straight answer to why they couldn't be there. So they, he organized over a hundred people to go to the beach, to wade in the water, just go to the beach and organize the peaceful protest. Well, the peaceful side of it didn't happen. Um, mm -hmm. It got pretty violent very fast. And, and so um, that video that I made up all about it is up on YouTube right now. And uh, there's been a few different things about it. Uh, Dr. Gilbert Mason is not unknown, but he's not as known as, you know, he really should be because of this. And because of those actions, um, it got sent all the way to the Supreme Court and uh, it's now legal for anybody public to come to the beach. Um, and, you know, that it's, it's actually a really incredible story. And I, I actually got to talk to two people who were actually there at the wait-ins um, to do interviews for that, for it. Yeah. And that's the brilliance of documentary is to access and to archive these voices that otherwise might go, have go missing in, in history, right? And there's so many of these untold stories that we don't really realize that and, and why we have almost a responsibility to do something about it, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. But I'm just thinking of the visuals of, first of all, um, a wait-in is such a powerful form of protest, uh, you know, like you said, as a sit-in, um, but how it gets brutally violent um, and, and what that reveals about our country. Obviously, this is during the height of the segregation era, right? You're talking that it was 1960, was it 1960? Yeah, there were, there were two wait-ins in Biloxi. The first one was 1959, I think, and then the next one was 1963 or 64. I don't remember exactly. Uh, don't quote me on those dates. Yeah. But um, in the second one, the second one was actually more peaceful. They were trained a little bit more. So when the officers came or if a mob was to come like they did the first time, they were trained on how to take the beating instead of running away. Their oh, whole gosh. goal was to get arrested so that wow. they could take the case to the Supreme Court. Wow. But... Ugh you know, to put yourself in that situation, to know the extent or the possibilities of whatever consequences is, is just for me, unimaginable. So um, how did, you know, with you researching this and um, I don't know how much you had learned or known about this in your upbringing or in your education, but have these, you know, to know and to, to want to um, reveal these disturbing histories, how do you think that's shifted your way of looking at um, our country's racial history, uh, you know, I'm sure it was already quite distinct in your in your world, but has it shifted it into another a level? Of yeah, there's just to me, it's it's just a shedding a light on how much history goes unknown. Um, in the black community, there is a month that you learn the same history over and over and over. Um, yeah. You know, in school, you, the month of February, you learn about Dr. Martin Luther King, you learn about Rosa Parks, mm -hmm. and then you you might learn, you know, uh, about, you know, George Washington Carver or somebody like that. But other than that, you don't really learn the history of how it happened, what happened to make the freedoms that we have available um, besides those three main influencers. Um, 
And there's, there are so many people like Dr. Gilbert Mason out there that really changed the course of history for, you know, people in Mississippi specifically um, that, I don't know. It's just, it makes you wonder how much other stuff is out there that we don't know. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> no, really. I mean, that, that's a huge, that's a tip of the iceberg. Right. And it's crazy because we're talking in today's 2022, things are still being unraveled. Things are so many, so many things are still not told. Um, and how does that make you feel? I mean, in addition to being a filmmaker and having the power of voice and creating these um, content that are important to kind of disrupt these, um, these old narratives, um, like as a, as a parent, because I know you have children, like how does that work with you? And if you don't mind sharing like your interracial marriage too, and how that, how that informs the way you communicate, you know, racism with your children and your family. Yeah, um, it does inform the way I communicate racism with my children and with my family. I know through this project and through some other events that have unfolded here nationally in America, my wife has really had her eyes opened up to, uh, for instance, um, white privilege. Uh, Where you know, is she from again? She is from Nevada. Okay. Um, uh, she was born in Utah, raised in Nevada for a little while, but then we both moved to Mississippi around the same age. So um, we have a really long history living here in, in Mississippi. Now, I will say that the coast of Mississippi, the bottom three counties, are not like, you know, every, all of the other parts of Mississippi, uh, as far as racism and all of that, we're really close to new Orleans. We're really close to mobile, Alabama. We're so, and it's the Gulf of Mexico too. So we've got a lot of Cuban immigrants. We've got a lot of Mexican immigrants. We've got a lot of French Creole from Louisiana here. It's more of a melting pot and it's never been, it's never felt, uh, racist. And that is actually part of why it was so surprising for me to find out about that dark history side of the beach in Mississippi, right. because there is, there is a past of racism, even in South Mississippi. Um, Biloxi is the home to um, Robert E. Lee's old home as well. Hmm. So, hmm. you know, there's, there are symbol, there are symbolisms yeah. and there are, ghosts of the past absolutely the history in that fact, are still here. Um, i just want to say that the one time when i did visit to film in mississippi gulfport uh my aunt took us to this crab festival down what's the other town down um it, a little there's further? there's biloxi ocean springs uh pascagoula Pas no. um it's give me another one it's a it's a very white community and they have a i guess a quite a well-known crab festival in the summer Long Beach? No. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> we drove. It was a couple of hours away. Um, but anyway, so I went with my newfound cousins and my aunt, who I never really met before either. Uh, speaking of silences, I just wanted to kind of insert that my aunt Barbara, she is my grandmother's, uh, I guess, niece because it's her sister's daughter. I never knew about her because nobody mentioned her after she married a man from Mississippi right? A black man from Mississippi. Her whole existence in our family tree was basically kind of delineated. And I somehow found her through different connections. And that's how I ended up in Mississippi to interview her and her family. Um, so they took us to that crab fest. And I'm going to try to figure, remember what that name of that place. It sounded like French, something, something, oh, you know, like a connective word. Like Socher. 
No. <laughs> I don't know. It had like hyphens in there. Um, <laughs> anyway, it, it, it was my first real uh, impression of what it meant to be in a very kind of and it's not just white community, right? I'm talking like you feel like it's a different kind of a white community. Like in this festival, they were all a certain type of like Trump supporter type white community. Yeah. And I felt the gaze. I felt the gaze from everyone. Of course, we looked different. It's like, okay, what's this weird family of Asians and black mix? Like they couldn't, you know, maybe there's just a genuine curiosity. But at the same time, these blatant stares from this kind of homogenous community staring at us and making me feel really quite awkward at a moment was striking. And when you say like these kind of haunted past that kind of trickle in. Um, it was brought to my attention by my cousin, Liana. Um, one of the stalls was selling these nice tea towels. And one of the motifs on the tea towels were cotton. And I did not connect if she did not bring that attention to me, like, why are they celebrating? What is the significance of cotton in the South being emblemed, uh, you know, weaved into into the, their, their towels? And I thought, wow, that's that's quite disturbing. You know, so it is it exists yeah. in so many different layers. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, and you were asking about my interracial marriage with yes. my wife. Um, for people that are listening to this and not actually seeing the video, I'm right. I'm actually very light, um, light skinned black. Um, I actually found out that my mom is mixed because oh. she she just recently, I don't even think we've talked about this. She just wow. recently found her birth mother and her birth father's past, but uh, she would have had connection to find that her mother is white and her dad was black, but she is like incredibly light. Like you wouldn't even know she has any kind of interracial anything, right. right? but her and my dad had me obviously. And so I'm very light skinned. Um, it's, but as far as like, percentage wise, I really like, I'd probably be 75% black, but I don't know. Um, but historically, but I, what does that mean for people who don't understand colorism within the black community? Can you kind well, of get a little, yeah. Yeah. Especially in Mississippi, Mississippi specifically had, and I think they might still have on, on the books, they don't necessarily follow it, but it's, it leads to one of the things that had been talked about in the news a lot before is like some of these racial laws that are still on the books that are just not implemented, but it was called the one drop law, one drop rule one drop or rule. one drop right. law. Right. Um, where if you had any sort of black in your history line, then you had to mark yourself down as a black American or African American. And what that did uh, was put you in a category where you had to use the colored, you know, things that they had in those days um, that law i'm not sure if that law is still on the books or not but yeah yeah that that was that was a real thing <laughs> yeah and so this connects to your project in kind of um bringing out the the, the darker truths of the biloxi weighed in protest situation and it also connects to um my film in blurring the racial lines in context to not knowing that there were Asians um, in the segregated South. And, and so you mentioned like, okay, so you, you know, black people couldn't um, drink from certain fountains or couldn't go to stores in the, in the front entrance, you know, things that are, we take for granted today because if we don't know that history 
um, you know, we know there's a disturbing past, but we didn't know the, 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 the little, the nuanced kind of um, ways that affected people's lives back then. But do you think that, you know, we've really progressed that much today in terms of these racial tensions that you see? We have, and I'll tell you why I think that. I think that because the physical objects of segregation are not there anymore. You're, you're always going to have people, individuals that have those thoughts. And um, I think that the power to change the things that are out there still is in the power of the vote. So mm. now we have the power to go out there and vote. Black people for a long time didn't have voting power. And now we do. Um, and now we're learning over, it's taken a lot of time, but we're learning how to use that power. Mm -hmm. And um, I think as we use that power, we vote people in who don't have these old ghosts thoughts, right? Yeah. And then we start implementing systems, start changing laws, and uh, things get better from there. Um, there are like there there are obviously still major problems but i think those are residual problems and i think that we're on a right trajectory when it comes to that and i think that's where the real change has happened is the change in trajectory it's not necessarily the change in outcome Hmm. So. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you're hopeful on that. I mean, as complicated and, and troubling it, it is still today. But, you know, I also have to think about, you know, you know, I'm obsessed with the idea of silent spaces and what's not being said. And, you know, even though the segregation laws are, are not in, in place anymore, you know, even looking at your kind of um, short uh, film on YouTube explaining the Biloxi, uh, the, the bloodbath, basically, from that weight in protest. Um, you know, one of your interviewees mentions, you know, the, the segregated sidewalk, right, where, you know, a black person would have to kind of basically step off if a white person was coming in your way. And these are visual markers of segregation, but the invisible markers in the way things play out today in terms of like housing and education and, and violence um, based on color of skin, I just think that they're so... I, I don't think we have we've done enough, um, and so you know <laughs> it's too big of a topic to 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 unravel. But how do we, in our own specific power and position, can do something that will make a difference? So, what is your voice, and what is it you're going to do that's going to make that change? For me, I think my real power is in the storytelling. You know, I think telling these stories and bringing shedding light on it um, when you put light in a dark place you know the evil there has to go away from it you know it's like when you turn the kitchen light on in a roach infested house all the roaches you know just leave um, that's that's kind of the first step um, and once the stories are out there there's no nobody can say i didn't know about it you know then you know because people people in general want to be good Hmm. They want to be good people. And so if you shine a light on an issue that is unjust, most of the time, if people want to be good, they're going to want to bring justice to that situation. Um, and that's really where my heart is. I'm, I'm all about justice. Um, and uh, 
for a long time, the black and brown communities have lived an unjust life within the white spaces. Um, and that, you know, America in general is predominantly a predominantly white and ha has predominantly white spaces. Yeah. And yeah, so, you know, there's unjust, there's injustices all around. And if I can shine, help shine a light on those injustices, yeah. I think, I think they'll uh, resolve because, you know, other people will want to help out. And, you know, if I can help out in other ways too, then I'm very open to doing that. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I support you through this. Good luck with that. I also, um, yeah, want to emphasize the the importance of um, voice and 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 us creating new content that's going to shift the narrative. Um, so I guess my final question to you is really going back to my documentaries. How did you feel, kind of maybe um, understanding or working with the the issue, the topic around race relations and the Chinese and Black relationship historically? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, yeah, it, I think they really do share a same, you know, the same thread, the same interleaving type of thing. Um, actually, you mentioned the interview with Dr. Black um, in, in my documentary, mm -hmm. he actually told the story of um, him going to one of the, you know, Chinese like shops, because some of the Chinese people could pass as being you know white enough or something like that um so not all of the black people could like own stores or something like that they couldn't you know be in certain places um but some of the chinese or um asian people could and so um this asian family was able to own this restaurant or um corner store in the in the wider part of the neighborhood um so i don't know it's it's like okay it's a one drop rule but you, you know you there, there's it's very blurry <laughs> so much so much tension right right in that spot uh, and then you know me being mixed and my mom being mixed as well um i'm i'm living part of that um, and, it, you know, I know it's, I can, I can empathize with the, the brown story as well, because of the way my skin looks, but I can, I can empathize with the blacks part of it too, because that's, you know, that's how I was raised. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's complicated. And but like you said, you embody that. And it's really, really important to kind of come into these blended spaces to be able to shift the way of thinking and to see things on a multiple layer, that it's not just black and white history, which has predominantly been kind of the way we've been learning things. So we need to kind of destroy that and rebuild with these very mixed narratives. And so I really appreciate your sharing your personal family um, context and, and this important project that you were working on. How can people uh, learn more about your work? Uh, if you want to see my work, you can go to YouTube and follow me there. Um, AJ Williams Media on all platforms. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and TikTok occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same, same, but great. Okay. So we'll share all that. And when I would put this up, so thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing. It was a pleasure to work with you. I hope that we can have connected projects somewhere down the line because there's so much more, so many more stories to tell.
That would be great. I'd love to connect with you and do some projects together. That'd be great. Thank you so much, Anthony. All right. Talk later.